Okay, let's get uh, let's get started here. We are in. We are just now getting into chapter two of Colossians. So, this is um, the fourth or fifth week. I don't. I'm not really sure where we are in the whole series, but we. It took us that long to get through chapter one. I promise it's going to pick up quickly. Um, we had to go through chapter one slowly because it is so deep. Um, it is very very rich, and Paul I think uses it to set up the rest of the letter. So he kind of just says, like, I'm going to do some heavy lifting now so that the things I say in chapters 2, 3, and 4 will make a lot more sense. So that's why it took us a while to get through chapter 1, um, but we are going to pick up some speed here as we hit kind of the, the meat of the letter, um, which kind of brings us to, I want to, before we, before we deal with the first seven verses of Colossians 2, I want to talk about where these seven verses fall in the book and why that matters, because you'll see that we are actually coming to a point in Colossians where there's a pretty significant turn in terms of Paul's emphasis. So, the book of Colossians has four chapters. So it's um, one of Paul's shortest epistles, at least general epistles to, to, um, that, aren't, that isn't addressed to someone in particular. So here's how kind of the, the whole book breaks down. You can really just diagram it like this. So chapter... One, the first two verses is his introduction where he says who he is and who he's writing to, as is his custom in just about any letter. Um, Chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, he talks about God the Father and establishes who that is and why that matters before getting into my favorite part of the book. Chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, where he talks about Christ the Son. So he establishes who he is, who he's talking to, and then he says, and let me tell you about God the Father. And based on that, let me tell you about Christ the Son. And then he jumps into from verse 24 of the first chapter all the way to chapter 2, verse 5. He talks about himself in light of these truths. He talks about Paul the servant. Um, And this is what you guys dealt with last week for those of you who were able to make it. And then from chapter 2, verse 6, all the way to chapter 4, verse 6, he talks about the Colossian church. And then from 4, 7 to the end of the book, he closes it out with some closing remarks. Say hi to this person, do that, and the other... This is the meat of the book right here. 2.6 all the way through 4.6. Now you could just say, now he, he puts it here because he's got to get some of this introductory stuff out of the way. Um, it's just customary or habit. But I think he puts the bulk of the letter here because uh, he's trying to convince the Colossians um, that they are part of an overarching story. So what Paul says is he says, let me tell you about the Creator. The one who owns everything, has rights to everything, and has a plan for everything. Let me tell you about his plan. His plan is through the Messiah, through the Supreme Christ. And he is effectively the creator, the sustainer, the one who will reconcile all things. Now let me tell you how that has affected my life and what part I have to play in that story, Paul says. He tells his story of suffering and discovering the mystery of the gospel. And then after that he says, now let me tell you about your part in the story. 
Paul says, if there is God the Father and He is in the, it, he's, it's true as Paul's described it, then the Son must be true as Paul described it, and then therefore Paul's mission must be true as he's described it. And he says, and now let me tell you about how you play in this story. He is not telling the Colossian church, I want you to be nice, I want you to behave well. He's telling them, recognize that you, a largely Gentile church, are Israel. And I'm not going to jump into all the contemporary application, but I really want us to think about um, how often do we read the Scriptures as if they're our own heritage. When you read the, the uh, genealogy list, when you see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, and on and on and on, when you read these, how like are you thinking, wow, incredible biblical figures, or are you thinking, my great-great-great-great-great descendants, or ancestors? Because like, that, that's the story of the Bible, is that there is an overarching story, and there are, there are two kinds of people. Those who are in the family, and those who aren't. And Paul, I think, makes the case that right here is the, the crux, the, the, the deciding line, the litmus test between who's in the family and who's not. And he says, and so I'm in the family. And I serve, and I, I will pour myself out for others' sake. And then he's going to call the Colossians to the same thing. Paul never really asks people to do anything that he's not himself willing to do. As a matter of fact, he, he holds himself out as an example. He says, follow me as I follow Christ. And I think in the Colossian church, he is asking them to see the same thing. Christ submits to the Father. I submit to Christ. You submit to Christ like I do. And then he's going to call into question this false gospel that they're hearing. And he's going to say, remember the true gospel, the true story. So, that brings us into chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Um, last week, you guys talked, so I, don't, uh, I wasn't here last week, but um, I'm sure many of you were. Last week we talked about some pretty charged words that are going to come up again in our text today. So we need to establish their meaning um, once more, or remember them. So, Last week in chapter 1, verse 24, Paul says this, this is the NIV, but it'll say basically the same thing in your translations too. He says, Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and will fill up in my flesh what is lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. What is he saying there? Someone who's here last week, what is he saying that I am suffering on your behalf, filling up what is lacking? What is he saying? This, this word, this idea is going to come up again in chapter 2. You want to take a stab at it? Alec, you're chomping at the bit, I can see. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Now, what is he saying? Is, did, is there something insufficient about what Christ did? Or what is he filling up that is lacking? I mean, this is kind of a... A confusing verse. Flesh, I'm going to fill up in my flesh what is lacking in regard to Christ's affliction. So did Christ not suffer enough and therefore Paul has to do it for him? Is the gospel incomplete until we are doing the suffering on his behalf? How does this like work itself out? Alec is trying to pass the baton to anyone else right now. Exactly. I mean, I mean, you might say, well, wait, hold on. I don't know if that's true. Like, is, does Jesus really need us? 
The an- the, here's the complicated answer. Yes and no. He, he doesn't, but he chooses to. He doesn't, but he's got a plan. In the end, Jesus is only going to... Um, he has a set number of things that, he, that, that must take place before he returns. We see this in a number of letters. And so Paul is going to pour himself out such that those things would take place. So that, the, so that the second coming of Christ, the return of Christ, the consummation of all things, the reconciliation and recreation of all things will finally happen. He just says, like, this isn't a, I'm now in the family and therefore I have nothing to do. It's not Paul the, I have nothing to do. It's Paul the servant. Because Christ served, he had a mission, so do those in the church. And he's saying, I'm struggling on your behalf, filling up what is lacking, pushing the gospel forward, as she pointed out. And he's going to bring this up again in chapter 2. So keep that in mind. And then there's another important word here. In, uh, I guess I should start in 25. Paul says, I have become its servant by the commission uh, God gave me to present, you, to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. What does Paul mean when he talks about this mystery? What's he saying here? He's saying that there's a gospel that he's going to preach that just really is kind of weird and cannot be known in its fullness. Is it hidden from some and not others? What is the nature of this mystery? And how, like, how well did Abraham know about that? How well did Moses know about that? But okay, so here's a good question: Did um, did Abraham know about Jesus? Hmm. It is revealed by Jesus. So there's there's this idea of progressive revelation because I would say Moses and Abraham are both included in the covenant community of God by the sacrificial work of Jesus on the cross and His resurrection, yet neither one of them ever knew His name. It's so interesting to think, who did, who did Abraham follow? He followed Yahweh. He didn't follow Jesus. Now, in the end, with our new revelation, we know that they're one and the same. But for thousands of years, God's people only had... Uh, uh, theologians like to use the term shadows. They just had shadows of this truth. Um, that is now clearly revealed in Jesus. And Paul says that this is something that can only be known by divine revelation from the God Himself, that would be Jesus. Now we know the fullness of the Gospel. Um, you read Hebrews 11 and you'll see like they were just hoping in something. It was a very real hope, but they didn't know who Jesus was. Yet His sacrifices applied to them, even the saints of the Old Testament. And Paul is saying that mystery is now completely revealed in Jesus. We totally know it. And so these, both of these words are going to come up again in chapter 2, and it's going to be real important. So, let's start with just a reading of the text. Um, I'm going to ask one person to read, and I'm going to ask everyone else to close their eyes and just listen. So I need someone who's got a loud voice. Kelsey, I'm picking you. Um, I want you to read. I want everyone else to close your eyes and listen because your tendency is going to be to read alongside of her. But I like to encourage people to get the experience that the Colossian church would have had. These people weren't reading Paul's letter. He didn't send an email. It was one letter. And the church leaders would have stood up in a public space and read it over you. So Paul writes letters knowing this. 
It's very, very interesting. Short of Philemon, um, 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus, all of Paul's letters were intended to be heard. And so that's, I like to tell people, hey, listen to the Bible on your Bible app because that's the most biblical way to do it. Um, so Kelsey's going to read the first seven verses of chapter two, and then we're all just going to listen and bask in the glory of the Lord's words through Paul. Thank you very much. Okay. So we're going to start out here. Verse 1. He says that he wants them to know how great a struggle he has for them. Um, Paul is well known to have had a bit bit of a difficult life post-conversion. Shipwrecks. um, Stonings. Just being thrown out of cities. So this guy's... He's, he's had a little bit of a rough go, but I don't think that this kind of physical suffering is the suffering he's talking about. I think it's much more along the lines of the suffering he describes in chapter 1, where he's agonizing on someone's behalf towards a goal, towards an end, towards the consummation of all things. And he says that he is struggling for them. That would be the church in Colossae. And for those in Laodicea, that would be a nearby city that is much more prominent than Colossae. And then he says, and for all who have not seen me face to face, I think he's, he's saying um, basically the, the Lycus Valley with the two important cities, Laodicea and Hierapolis. You hear about Laodicea in Revelation 3. Um, and then Colossae. This would be kind of, um, I don't know how you think of it as Stillwater, Perry, and Morrison. It's kind of like this area, you people, OSU fans. It's kind of like all of you people. That's who he's talking, and he's saying, I'm struggling on your behalf. Um, And this is very much a a spiritual struggle, a struggle um, where he is going to relentlessly pursue the truth of the gospel so that they would, um, as he'll say in other places in his writings, so that they will remain firm to the end, so that they will um, persevere to the end or stand firm in their faith all the way towards the end, because we know that there is a bit of a heresy creeping into this church. Um, I think, too, that as Paul emphasizes his own struggle here, um, not only is he describing what he's doing, but I think he's probably preparing the church for what it's going to look like to withstand this heresy, to withstand the false teaching that's going to come into the church. He says, you know, like it's not going to be popular to remain fast or to stand fast on the truth of the gospel, the pure gospel, which we'll talk about, the one that was revealed by Christ to his apostles through, in the old times, through the prophets and down into the apostles and now to you. This, this authentic gospel is saying, like, remaining faithful to this is going to be a struggle. So Paul 
as he follows Christ is asking them, follow my example. I'm struggling on your behalf. I need you to be willing to engage the struggle as well. And then whenever he says there at the very end of verse 1 that he's writing this for all who have not seen me face to face, it's important to remember these are not churches Paul planted. And um, they, his reputation certainly would have been known um, as an apostle. And he is writing this letter, and it's, I think he intends that it carries apostolic authority. It carries the authority of his presence. Um, and so what he says is going to be true and ought to be followed. So verse 2. We ask uh, the question, what then is he struggling for? He says they're struggling that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of mystery, which is Christ. He wants them to be encouraged. That's nice, but this is not like um, Hallmark card encouragement. This is not, I want Brandon to feel better encouragement. This is not, I really want you to have like high self-esteem. I really want you to know that everything is going to be okay. Encouragement. What's he encouraging them towards? It says there at the back half of verse 2, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. He's encouraging them that they would have the full weight of conviction, the full assurance that the gospel they've been preached, the gospel that they have heard and been following up to this point, the gospel that is now at risk as you have heretics coming in to preach a new gospel. He's saying, I pray that you would be convicted about the truth of the pure gospel. Now, it is quite interesting though, to figure out how that comes about. Because I could tell, say Alec, I could tell Alec, like I really want you to know the truth of this gospel. I really want you to believe everything I've told you with all the ferocity you can muster. And he can even say, I want to. And how does, how does this come about in Paul's setup? It's the little parenthetical remark. I want, you that, I want your hearts to be encouraged being knit together in love. And in the context of being knit together in love, that you would reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. Isn't it fascinating that Paul does not say what you need is additional information to know the truth, to have wisdom and understanding. He says, no, you need to be like unified in love. What I think he's saying is that you can only experience this in a spirit-filled community of Christ. Which goes along with our definition of mystery is that which is revealed. It's not something you can discover. It is revealed um, in terms of kind of the, the word mystery as it's used in the text. In other places, like um, in especially the book of Revelation, but in other places of, of the Bible as well, you'll have these words sitting right next to each other, and they are used interchangeably. Mystery, apocalypse, and revelation. These are, they all carry the same idea. Something you cannot reason your way to. Something, and this always makes me question why we do apologetics, but something you cannot reason your way to, something that must be revealed from something outside of yourself that would be a divine agent that acts on you to help you understand 
the knowledge of God's mystery. He says that's really only found in the context of biblical loving community. And, and I find that very, very interesting. So contrary to what um, Paul's opponents may have thought, Paul really doesn't have any like space in his gospel for an individualistic spirituality. Like, you, like, how can you be a Christian apart from a church? You want to go and find the furthest reaches of whatever exception you want? Have fun. Just by definition, Christians are church members. They are members of the Bride of Christ. And Paul just says, because that's where revelation takes place, in the context of spirit-filled community. And, uh, and let's not just hang our hat on one verse. Let's go back to Ephesians 3. This is actually a pretty um, well-attested-to idea in the New Testament. Ephesians 3, verse 14, Paul starts to pray for the Ephesian church. He says this, For this reason I kneel before, actually, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Again, much like Colossians, establishing that there is someone who created all things and therefore has the rights to all things and therefore whatever follows we should listen to and agree with. He says in verse 16, I pray that out of His glorious riches, He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love, how can you be rooted and established in love if you aren't in the context of community? I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people. He doesn't let you separate it. And then what's that power for? To grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that sounds an awful lot like what he's talking about in Colossians 2. To know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Which sounds a lot like, I want you to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. In Ephesians, it's in the context of the church. In Colossians, it's in the context of the church. And so Paul is telling them, remain firm to the gospel. And the best place to do that is to remain firm in the church. And in this unification of love, you will experience the revelation of this great mystery. Verse 3. So you'll know the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Um, I won't belabor the point on knowledge, but I do want to talk about wisdom for just a minute. Wisdom is a... um, it is a, a fantastic theme to trace through the Old Testament. It's almost as if in the Old Testament, wisdom is a characteristic of the divine. They talk about wisdom as if it's God Himself. Like, you're not wise. Wisdom is almost a person. And when they talk about it in the Old Testament, it just sounds like they're talking about God. And I have to assume because they've really, they, they have this conviction that true wisdom, if it's, if it's wise at all, it must flow out of the nature and out of the character of God Himself. And some great sections to look at this will be um, Proverbs 2. We'll, we'll look at Proverbs 2, and then we'll look at two other Proverbs. Well, one other. Proverbs 2 tells us um, both the value of wisdom and where it comes from. 
Wisdom is, again, not really something you can aspire to, you can collect as much as it's, it just seems to be revealed. Here's what it says in Proverbs 2. My son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding. Indeed, if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, and if you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Again, a topic brought up in Ephesians 3 and Colossians 2. It's very hard to take these ideas of mystery, revelation, knowledge, understanding, and wisdom and untangle them. It's a thread you really can't pull at. They are kind of a package deal in the Scriptures. He goes on in verse 6, For the Lord gives wisdom from His mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He holds success in store for the upright, and He is a shield for those whose walk is blameless. For He guards the course of the just and protects the way of His faithful ones. So, this tells us that it is exceedingly valuable, worth all your efforts to get it. And then He says, and it's from God Himself. It's nothing to be found as much as it's something to be given. Now, the two probably most prominent chapters in our Bibles regarding wisdom um, are in Proverbs 8 and 9. These would have been given um, at a period uh, in, Israel's, in Israel's history where they are still underneath the monarchy. It's likely that these were being pinned during Solomon's reign or shortly thereafter. So they would have only really had any way to understand this in reference to Yahweh Himself. But as I read through Proverbs 8, just think Jesus' name and tell me if you can tell a difference between biblical wisdom and the person of Jesus. They are virtually identical. So here's Proverbs 8. Starting in verse 1. Does not wisdom call out... Does not understanding raise her voice? At the highest point along the way, where the paths meet, she takes her stand. Beside the gate leading into the city, at the entrance she cries aloud, To you, O people, I call out. I raise my voice to all mankind. You who are simple, gain prudence. And you who are foolish, set your hearts on it. Listen, for I have trustworthy things to say. I open my lips to speak what is right. My mouth speaks what is true, for my lips detest wickedness. All the words of my mouth are just. None of them is crooked or perverse. To the discerning, all of them are right. They are upright to those who have found knowledge. That just sounds a whole lot like, for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, let them hear. That sounds like Jesus in the Gospels. He goes on. Um, Choose my instruction instead of silver. It seems pretty valuable. Knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is more precious than rubies, and nothing you desire can compare with her. I, wisdom, now we've turned into the first person of this passage. I, wisdom, dwell together with prudence. I possess knowledge and discretion. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior and perverse speech. Counsel and sound judgment are mine. I have insight, I have power. Again, this just sounds like the Messiah. 
By me, kings reign and rulers issue decrees that are just. By me, princes govern and nobles all who rule on earth. I love those who love me and those who seek me find me. That sounds like Jesus. With me are riches and honor, enduring wealth and prosperity. My fruit is better than fine gold. What I yield surpasses choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness along the paths of justice, bestowing a rich inheritance on those who love me and making their treasuries full. That just sounds like Jesus. Now jump over to the end of the passage, verse 32. Now then, my children, listen to me. And here come the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who keep my ways, says wisdom, and then says Jesus later on. Listen to my instruction and be wise. Do not disregard it. Blessed are those who listen to me, watching daily at my doors, waiting at my doorway. For those who find me find life. I wonder who that sounds like. And receive favor from the Lord. But those who fail to find me harm themselves. All who hate me love death. Now, Proverbs chapter 9 is very, very similar. This just sounds like the Jesus that Paul preaches, which really helps me understand verse 3 of Colossians 2. In Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And Paul says, here's how it goes. Just run the, like, run the verses backwards. When you find wisdom, you'll find Christ. When you find Christ, you've understood the mystery of God's plan for the ages. And when you get there, you understand God himself and you are part of this family. And you see what he is setting up before he makes the turn into, therefore, this is what you need to do. Therefore, he's he's still worshiping. He's still talking about these incredible truths. He says, like, you're in this story too. Jump down to verse 4, Colossians 2. Paul says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. He's very concerned that the truth of the gospel is going to be overwritten by some pseudo-sham of a gospel. I say this that in order, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, I'm not there, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. What he's saying, two things. I don't want you to fall for this ridiculous fake gospel and you're doing a great job so far. He does encourage them. He just says, like, I'm very thrilled to see you guys are maintaining good order and you are remaining firm in your faith in Christ. Now, back in verse 4, he says he doesn't want you to be deluded with plausible arguments. Um, Let's see what the the NIV, I can't remember how they say it. NIV says... um, He doesn't want you to be deceived by fine-sounding arguments. This, I tried to figure out what this word means, because if if you say a plausible argument, I'm like, okay, well, that sounds like something I should listen to. If it's plausible, I should listen to it. Um, Paul had to dig really, really deep to even find a word to communicate what he's trying to do. There wasn't a word in his version of Greek to to, to put here. He had to reach way back into like Homer's like classical Greek. So it would be like us using King James English to communicate a point. We just don't have a word in modern English, so we've got to go get something that King James or Shakespeare was using. That kind of distance. And Paul basically has to take that and make up a word and smash them together. Here's, here's kind of the definition I was able to find last week. This word, plausible sounding arguments, this word is used in reference to speculative arguments as opposed to empirical demonstration. 
This is speculation. This is just throwing up a guess because it's fun to talk about. This is, I really wonder if the United States landed on the moon. This is that kind of argument. It's, I don't really know if you have any real facts, but you think that you're an expert in Photoshop and that we forgot to put shadows and that there's no stripes on the flag anymore. So now you know the truth. And I'd be like, at best you're speculating and more likely you're sounding a little foolish. So like we have, that's what Paul is saying about their gospel. He's saying like, you are, you are going against the empirical evidence of the real gospel and you're just speculating about what might be true and what might be a, a better alternative. Speculative arguments, if you look at kind of how other Bibles translate it, is rendered as fine-sounding arguments, as in the NIV, well-crafted arguments in your NLT, specious arguments in the New Jerusalem Bible, Anthony's not here to say amen, I'll say it for him, or even fancy talk in the Common English Bible. It just says, it's like fine-sounding, it's someone who is really, like, they do well with words. They're a very smooth talker. They have a silver tongue. And therefore, I can convince you of just about anything because of how I say it. You guys ever listen to Drew Moss talk and think he could just sell me sand and I would pay thousands of dollars because Drew asked me to buy sand? Like, he, that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, like, there's no substance behind it. They're just, they're just orators. They're just people that know. And there's substance behind Drew's. So don't draw that comparison. But... He is saying there's no truth behind it. It just sounds nice, and so you're going for it. So that's, that's speculation. And then he encourages them. And I'm so glad that you guys are remaining orderly and remaining firm, standing firm to the gospel. Um, if you were to literally translate the words, it would just be convincing words. Someone has convinced you, or the, someone's trying to bring a, a convincing argument, and you guys are doing a good job of staying away. Verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, Paul says, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Um, Paul introduces here the concept of the tradition that you heard. He says, just as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. He says, the gospel that you heard is a traditional um, it, is, it is a tradition that's been passed down. And you heard it. You were in the lineage of those who heard this. Therefore, walk in light of that. And I don't have a lot of time left, so I'm just going to quickly end with and the best place to see Paul's traditional gospel. What he heard from Jesus himself, what he corroborated with the, um, the testimony of the other apostles, what the Spirit spoke through Paul. You can find the purest of the Pauline gospel in 1 Corinthians 15. This is where he says very directly, this was the gospel I was given, and therefore this is the gospel I'm giving to you. 1 Corinthians 15, um, starting in verse 3. Paul says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He's pulling in the whole Old Testament, which to him would have just been the Bible. He's pulling in. He died according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living. Basically, Paul's saying, go ask them. Though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, He appeared to me also as one abnormally born. Paul is saying that this is the authentic gospel. Um, verses 
3, 4, and 5 are likely the oldest words of the New Testament. It's so formulaic that most scholars say this was an early Christian creed that the church developed shortly after Jesus ascended to heaven. And this is how they described what happened with their Messiah. And Paul is reminding the Corinthian church in this particular letter of that pure early statement of faith before they could write any of the New Testament. This is what the church would say. Why are you guys so weird? Well, because Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. That's their story. And Paul says, this is the tradition to which you guys must cling and therefore walk in Him. How do you walk in Him? Being rooted, built up in Him, established in the faith just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving. When you hear rooted, think... Uh, this, is, this was convenient that this came up after last Sunday... When you hear rooted, think good soil. When you hear built up, think new temple of God. And when you hear established, think cornerstone of the faith. I don't know that Paul is hitting those references so directly. They just jump off the page too much to have been a real accident. And all of those ideas, all of those themes, all of those images just fly through the New Testament in a number of places. And he says, and all of that kind of results in thanksgiving. So... um, We're going to take a couple of minute break, but I want you guys to think slash discuss with those around you. um, What are, in in kind of your your life today as you live out as a believer in Stillwater, Oklahoma, what are some of those plausible arguments to which we might be susceptible? What are some of the things that just sound so nice we want to believe them, maybe even with a lack of or in spite of the facts? So think about some of those things, and by the way, if it goes to politics, I'm not shocked, because I think everyone has a little bit of snake oil they're trying to sell me. And so plausible arguments just kind of, mm. Okay, discuss, and use the restroom, whatever, a couple minutes, and then, then Scott. All right, everybody here? All right, I'm going to start in. So I, I'm kind of assuming that the... You know, one of the reasons why you're here tonight is, is to, is to grow in Christ, and and this, this this phrase comes up that Paul uses to to walk in Him, and so I really I really want to spend our time talking about what does that what does that mean what what does that mean for us specifically, and um, and so I want to start with this picture. We were in I was in Israel. And if you were on, at church on Sunday, Steve mentioned this story, but we were, we had just, we were walking down from the, the um, Garden of Olives, right? Mount of Olives, whatever that is. At the Garden of Gethsemane, Mount of Olives. Yeah. We were walking from the Mount of Olives down to the Garden of Gethsemane. And on the way, we stopped at this kind of lookout point. And, and it similar kind of view, although we were down a little further. But So we're, we're, we're looking... That's the temple there, by the way. That's the this whole this whole thing is a temple mount. That's the dome of the rock. So we were looking at the temple, and we were talking about um, th- we actually at this at the place where Jesus overlooks the temple, and where he he says, "Oh, oh, Jerusalem, how I I long to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks." Um, and and so there's this kind of moment where Jesus is saying, "You know, this is not going to go well for you, Jerusalem." And, and I think it's in that section where he describes 
how not, not one stone will be left unturned. And then, and then okay, this, is, this wasn't planned, but then later on, I saw the stones that weren't unturned. Those were them. So those are those are first century stones. When when the Romans came in and destroyed the temple, they they were ticked at the at the Jews for revolting, and so they just pushed all the the walls over. And this is stones. So we got to see literal fulfillment of Jesus' words. But anyway, I digress. Back to the on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. Right. So we're walking down, and we stop at this place where Jesus says this about Jerusalem, and and <clears throat> our guide. Ori says something that has really kind of been rattling in my head ever since. And he was talking about in the context of prayer and how when the, when the disciples asked Jesus, teach us how to pray, this wasn't like, it wasn't the same question that you ask when you say to somebody who's along in their faith, hey, how do you, you know, tell me how you pray or what do you think about prayer or help me with prayer. It wasn't the same question. I always thought it was. I thought it was just, oh yeah. The disciples were just trying to think of questions to ask Jesus, and why not ask about prayer? That's a that's a confusing one. Everyone kind of you know has questions about prayer. Teach us about prayer, Jesus. No, it wasn't that. It was that Jesus actually prayed. And it, well, one that he actually prayed, and that he prayed different. And his point was, rabbis in that time didn't pray, and they didn't talk about prayer. And he said that he said something to the effect. I think he even used this word "invented," but I think he said, "I don't know if you guys are in on this conversation." It was kind of a side conversation. The Blackburns and the and the Thomases were there with me, um, but he said, "Prayer wasn't really invented until after the destruction of the temple." For, for the for the Jewish leaders, prayer wasn't really a part of their daily life. And I, we we're like, "Okay, what do you mean by that?" And he said, "Well, for most of." history, the way they communicated with God was through sacrifice. Now you had, you had some select individuals who had direct communi- communication with God, but by and large, 99.9% of the people, the way they communicated with God was bringing a sacrifice to the altar and giving it to the priest, and that was their way of communicating with God. Prayer wasn't a part of their life. And, and so... And being in this culture um, where, one, you can't go to the temple and pray um, because it's run by the, the Muslims and they don't want to cause any problems. So the, Israel, the Israelite government actually enforces this rule. It's kind of weird. Uh, but, but you're not allowed to pray on the temple mount and, and several of us are going, well, yeah, I can walk around and pray. They'll never know. I'll be sneaky about it. But Because to them, prayer is something that involves all of you. It involves, it, it, it's, it's like all of your emotion, it's, it's this action that's happening. And, and we've reduced prayer to just thoughts in our head. Like, I'm praying as I'm mowing the grass, and I'm praying as I'm driving to work, and I'm praying as I'm fixing dinner, and I'm praying, and you know, a lot of times when I pray, I just slip in and out of thinking about grocery list to, oh God, thank you for this, or help me with this, to what am I going to have for dinner tonight? Tonight, or you know, I just—I don't know about you, but I—I I, I move back and forth, and, and this is all just happening in my head, and I call it prayer. And I think if you were to describe that to a Jewish person or a Muslim today, they would think you're crazy. Like you're talking, 
you're talking to the creator of the universe and this is all just in your head? Like this doesn't involve your body? This doesn't involve your life? And, and so being in this culture and, and hearing the call to, to Muslim prayer five times a day over the speakers throughout all of Jerusalem and then seeing, seeing guys at the, at the temple at the Western Wall. Um, this is the Western Wall. So these are, these are Jewish men here and women here. But you notice the men are standing and you can't I didn't take a video, but they're they're swaying back and forth. They're they're walking around. I mean, they're they call this the Wailing Wall for a reason. This is the only place the Jews are allowed to pray against this Western Wall. It's why they've it's become this famous place of prayer. Um, and we you walk up to these cracks in the wall and there's stuffed with little bitty notes with prayers written on them. But to them, this is where they go and they wail and they pray and they move back and forth and they rock and they. It's, it's because it's invol- it involves all of them. And, and, and to us, prayer, a lot of times, is, is just something that we do in our heads. And, and so when, when I'm asked to spend a long time in prayer, I get, I get distracted or I get bored. Or when, I, when I'm asked to, to, you know, I've been in places, okay, get down on your knees. We're going to pray on our knees. And it's like, really? Because that's uncomfortable. That, my knees hurt. Um, or, or when, hey, I want you to all pray out loud. I've been in places. We're all, gonna, we're all just going to, I want you to cry out to God right now. And we're like, really? That's kind of awkward. I don't really want to do that. I'd rather just sit at home on the couch, watch TV, and have a conversation with God in my head. So where, where is the line there? So I'm not saying that it's wrong to, to pray silently. But when we've reduced it to thoughts in our heads, I think there's something broken in that. And, and so I want to talk a little bit about why I think we've done that here in a, here in a little bit. But in our text, Paul, Paul says, um, walk in Jesus, right? To walk in Him, to be rooted, um, to be built up, to be established, to be abounding in thanksgiving. And, and these, are, these are things that can't just be done in your head. These are things that people should witness around you. These are things that, that should be expressed in, in your life. And so, they should be seen. Um, I'm amazed that, that we can make anything trendy. So, so right now, and this is a good thing, um, but health is trendy. Okay? And you know, you know it's trendy because there's these really cool smart watches, and I have one, um, there's these really cool watches that keep track of your steps and that do all this stuff, right? And it's now, it's, it's trendy to keep track of your steps. And, and now people are walking more because they want to count their steps. And if I'm not going to have my watch on, then what's the point of, of walking, right? Are you okay? All right. Did I catch you off guard? Um, and so, so I have a friend. You guys know him. You'll, you'll recognize who I'm describing here in a second. But he... Um, becomes obsessed about just about anything, but recently he's become obsessed about walking. Okay, he walks everywhere, and and when he found out that there's a that I can get a watch, and I can become part of a group, and we can compete to see who has the most steps each day and each week, and then I can somehow beat somebody at something, I'll take that. I will start exercising. 
to beat somebody is kind of the mentality, right? So he starts walking, and he's literally trying to walk 20 to 30,000 steps a day, which takes four to five hours a day, right? <laughs> and so Jim, um, at, at, at uh, you know, at Israel, he would get up, and he would walk in the morning, and then we would walk and hike all day, and then he would walk at night, um, and... And so if I would have come to, this is, what, this is what struck me about this. This is awesome. I love that, I love that this has become healthy, or uh, trendy. Um, it's, you remember when smoking was trendy? It's not trendy anymore. That's a good thing. I'd like to think, I would like to think that somehow as a culture we've become sanctified. I don't know if that's the case. I think, I think, I don't know. There's, I hope that for those who are followers of Christ that it's motivated out of godly reasons. Um, to be healthy, but I, I just, nonetheless, I, I love it. And so, so, so Jim is now walking four to five hours a day, trying to beat Alan Higgins. That's his goal in life every day is to beat Alan Higgins at walking. And and I and he said something interesting. He said, you know, now that I'm walking a bunch, I'm listening to sermons and podcasts, and I'm praying a ton. And man, this is awesome. Like I'm getting so much out of this time. Like I really am. I'm reflecting about my life and. I feel more at peace and, and all this stuff. And he's proving what, you know, what everybody that's in the exercise and fitness world says. If you do this stuff, you'll actually feel better. You'll give you more energy. We always think, no, I don't have time. I don't have 30 minutes a day. I don't have 15 minutes a day to do that. And, and everybody says, yes, you do, because it'll increase your energy and you'll, you'll, it'll gain that time, and, right? And so Jim's kind of experiencing this. And, but, but walking in Christ is kind of a lot like this. Um, you know, people like the idea of walking 20 to 30,000 steps a day to get exercise, but who's going to spend, other than someone highly motivated in competition, who's going to spend that on a regular basis and, and, and actually spend the four to five hours that it takes? And I think people like the idea of being Christ-like, but who's... But to actually take the time and to, and to, and to sacrifice something, to, to spend time in the Word, to pray, to, um, to follow God's leading, which could mean to apologize to a co-worker or ask for forgiveness or confront somebody, a, a, fo- a fellow believer who's walking away. Um, it could mean sharing the gospel with somebody. It could mean things that would require something of you like a sacrifice, and your time, and your energy. And, and what happens, and you guys know this, that like when we actually like follow God and obey Him and walk in Him, then all of a sudden we realize, man, I, I'm experiencing the presence and the power of God, His, His activity in my life more than I ever have. Like I would have never dreamed that this is what it could be like. But looking at it from this end, if I had asked, told Jim, about a month before he got this watch. Hey, you need to walk about four to five hours a day. He would have, he would have, well, he probably would have punched me. Um, um, he's always trying to point out whatever. So he's just <laughs> obsessed about his weight and whatever, whatever, right? So he would have looked at me and like, oh, yeah, easy for you to say. But, but now that he's doing it, he's reaping the benefits from it. And he's... Right? So walking in Christ is kind of like this, the same thing. There's, 
there's these things that happen. You you experience God at another level, and it and it it will require time and sacrifice. And um, you know, this is something that we that we we like the idea. Of, we like the idea of being loving people. We just we don't want to take the time that it takes to surrender our life to the Lord, to let Him produce fruits of the Spirit in us, to let Him transform us, to, to walk in obedience. These are things that are difficult, sometimes things that He asks us to do, um, but He has a purpose and a plan, and it will require. Um, but why, why do we want to reduce prayer? Why, do we, why are we tempted to reduce prayer to thoughts in our head? Why are we tempted to short-circuit this, this Christ-like, process, this transformational sanctification, sanctifying process. Why do, why do we want to short-circuit it? And I think that um, there's, there's, there's reasons that are, that are consistent with all of human history, i.e., we're selfish, um, we want to build our own kingdoms, we want to usurp, uh, which is one of my favorite words that Scott McKnight uh, taught me, to usurp God's authority, because God has authority over all things, but we want to usurp His authority and insert our own. And so we want to do our own thing. That's consistent with all of human history. But I think there's some, a unique one that we as Westerners, as Americans, experience. And it's consumerism. Consumerism, I think, is we are, we are saturated in a culture of consumerism. So... Part of the reason why we want to make prayer just really, really simple and easy and just something I can do in my head, which, by the way, if I'm having a conversation in my head and just assuming that God's cool with whatever it is I'm saying as I float in and out of talking with Him and working on my shopping list and thinking about what I have to do tomorrow, and um, then, then we've not only reduced prayer, but we've reduced God to something. And, and, we, and we've made this, this relationship with the, commu- the, the creator of the universe maybe something it was never intended to be. So I don't know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not asking you to do anything yet. I'm just at, challenging you to think about what that means. But, so why do we do it? Well, I think we, we look at our time and our money and we say, okay, um, I have limited time and money, and I don't want to waste any of it. And so, what kind of benefits am I going to get if I use my time and my money? This is this is this is a this is saturated. We're saturating. This is what consumers do. We ask that question: what, What's the what's the cost benefit ratio here? What's this going to cost me? What am I going to benefit from it? So you notice, even in my description of walking in Christ, I described how you will experience God at another level. You, you'll 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 recognize His presence and activity like you've never before. I'm I'm trying to sell you on something, so that you'll attempt to be a little more intentional with it. It's it's just it's pervade. It's in it's in me. It's in you. It's in us. And we won't get our we don't want to give our time and money to anybody unless we know that what we're going to get is going to benefit us. And so we're okay with wasting our own time and money. That's, that's not a problem. I waste my time and money all the time. But I'm really not okay with Jesus wasting my time and money. 
And so we, so some, at some level, there's this consumer heart that says, yeah, I, I need to know before I jump in here, if I give you 10%, what are you going to, what am I going to get back? So there, there's this, there's this thing that's happening. Um, and, and I believe it will think it will take time and sacrifice to, to be, um, to, to walk in him will require it. But Paul flips flips on its head who is consuming who. And he says, think about chapter 1, 15 through 20, um, how this high view of Jesus that he gives us. He says he is the image of the invisible God. All things everywhere were created by him and through him and for him. So all things everywhere, created by him, through him, and for him. That's big. He is supreme over everything. In our text today, he says that in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And it says that He is Lord in this, in verse 6. So Paul says, when, when you think Jesus is the one that you are consuming, that somehow you're weighing the cost-benefit ratio, Paul says, no, it's actually the other way around. You just don't see reality. He, he, he would say that our life belongs to Him and that He is consuming us that we should be offering our life for Him to be used for His purposes. Paul starts this letter, and this is what I love. I love this picture. This is a really great picture of what's happening in Colossians. Um, But he starts off right at the bat with this view of Jesus because he knows that a right understanding of Jesus uh, aligns everything else in proper order. It aligns everything else. Someone once said, I don't know who it was, but I wrote it down. Um, Christology, okay, so he's going to give four words. Christology, which is the study of Christ, is soteriology, which is the word for the, the study of salvation, so think salvation, is ecclesiology, which is the church, think the church, is ethics, which is like love. So Christology is soteriology, is ecclesiology, is ethics. In other words, a right view of Jesus, a right understanding of Jesus, leads to righteousness in Him, which is salvation, which leads to being a part of His body, which is the church. And in, in our text it says, being knit together in love. Right? So it leads to this, this um, right place in the body of Christ, which leads to a right understanding of how to love others. I need... I need a right understanding of Jesus in order to be saved, in order to become a part of this church where I learn how to rightly love others. And it's, a, it's the kind of love that Jesus loves others with. It's not, the love, it's not the love that says, I want to love you by making you feel better about you. It's a love that says, I want to love you by helping you love God more. Because when you f- fall in love with Him, you'll find out who you are and, and it all goes better. So, walking in Him, right, will require this this right view of Jesus, this this right understanding of His gospel, and it and it trickles down to learning how to be the kind of people that we want to be, which is loving people, people who love well. And it starts with this right view of Him. And 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 Paul in in, in our verse specifically not only says um, He's Lord. 
But he says that, that there's this proximity that, that's happening. That you're walking in Him. There is a proximity. And my tendency to hear that phrase, my tendency is to really just run to talking about what, it, what it's like to have a relationship with the Lord, what it's like to spend time with Him and, and, to, and, and to, to talk with Him and to share your life with Him. And, that, and that's my, where my tendency would want to run. But when I read the context, verse 6, the verses around verse 6 and 7 are warning texts. So right before verse 6, it, says, it describes others as deluding them with plausible arguments. And then look at verse 8. Verse 8 talks about um, warning them to, um, to let no one who takes them, to, no one take them captive by, with philosophies and empty deceit. Right? So he's, he's warning them. Listen, there are people that are going to try to delude you. And there are people that are going to try to convince you with these, these philosophies and this empty deceit. And so Paul says right in the middle of that, to walk in him. So the context surrounding it is, is warning. What, what is he warning them of? To, what is he warning them from? And that's, he's like, like, like um, Ryan pointed out, he's warning them to, as the church, not shift, like he said earlier, not to shift one way or the other, but to stay focused on, on Christ. Um, Matt Chandler was, uh, I heard him I heard him preach a, preach a sermon, and it was called, the sermon was called Guarding the Garden. Guarding the Garden. And he was telling a story of how he was preaching at some pastor's conference, and the guy before him was getting up and was talking about, he had this idea that, that as pastors, they should be gardeners, not guards. And his whole thing was, quit being, you know, quit walking around telling everybody, why they're wrong, and just cultivate the, the church and the, and the ground that God has you. Just cultivate where God has you. It's kind of his message. And Matt's going, yeah, that's great. Man, it's good. That's true. I am, I am combative sometimes, and I need to be more loving, and I need to just focus on who God's sending my, into our church to just love and, and, and raise them up and not worry about people coming in and, and just focus on who's, who's there, cultivating who's there. Until... And so he says, I'm with him the whole way, going, yeah, yeah. And then he gets to the end and says, you know, because really, the guy says, we can't really define the gospel. Every, everybody needs to kind of define the gospel in your own communities. And when you, in the, when you can define the gospel in your own communities, then you can cultivate the gospel there, is kind of the idea. And that's when he, Chandler says, ah, that's when I realized why he doesn't believe in guards. Because he doesn't believe there's something to guard. He doesn't believe that there is a definition of the gospel, that, that all throughout church history they've defined the gospel as Christ's redemptive work, Christ in dying in our place for our sins and his, his imputed righteousness passed on to us because of what He's done. That, that Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of God's bigger story of redemption and restoration to all the world. And that Paul um, is a great example of somebody who is very, much a guard to the churches that he's gardening. And he's trying to help them. Listen, there are all kinds of belief systems out there, and they will come in and delude you. And before you know it, you'll lose sight. You'll shift one way or the other. And I love this idea that we are called to guard something as a body. He's not talking to 
Paul's not talking to pastors or to leaders. He's talking to the church that, that we as a church are we're called to, to, to grow in our understanding of Christian doctrine and, and what the Bible teaches and what the gospel is, to be able to recognize what the gospel is and when someone starts to preach something that, that's going down a direction that we don't want to go, that goes against what we believe because there is something at stake. As the body of Christ, there is something at stake and we, um, we all have a part in that. So, I want to ask you, like, is, it, is, is the gospel something you could defend? Is, is a, would a false gospel be something that you could recognize? And I would say that, that Paul's telling us, you need to grow in your ability to be able to recognize false gospels. Um, and, and recognize when, when other things are, are, are entering in that may that may kill um, the garden. <laughs> so, uh, you can take this illustration, right? I, I believe Paul is intending this for the church, but, but, you can, but you can also think about it personally, of your own soul and your own health and your own belief in the gospel, that, that things can, can creep in. I was reminded of this just last week, right, over, right along this fence, right outside this window, there's this giant weed of a plant slash bush that started back there and it's just kind of slowly grown over the last year. And, and so I was thinking, yeah, one of the things we'll do is we'll take down that big bush that's covering the tree. And who was, oh, is Arnisha was there. My wife is there. We started cutting this thing out. And one, it's infested with black bugs. We're still not sure what these black bugs are, but they were all over us. And, and someone, I won't mention who, um, just want nothing to do with it. So, so all the bugs jumped on me. But anyway, uh, so we start trying to pull this off, and I realized this is, a, this is like a two-day project to cut all this down and to throw all this away. Why? It's because we just let it grow. We just let it go. We just let it do whatever it wanted. Nobody guarded that fence over the last year. And this thing has just taken over. And now it's a giant pain to get rid of it. And, and, and in the same way, that's what happens when we don't, when we don't guard um, the church, when we don't guard our, the garden of our soul, I guess, is like weeds will overrun us and, and take over. And to walk in, in Christ will require guarding against eluding arguments. It will require us to know um, what we believe about the gospel. L- listen to 1 Peter 3.15. It says, But in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord, Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So Paul's saying, Be prepared. To give a reason. That's a challenge to us. And then, so after he describes walking in Christ, being rooted, these words, rooted, built up, established, those seem to all relate and make sense to me. But the very last one, abounding in thanksgiving, that one had me kind of puzzled. Okay, how does thanksgiving relate to those? It seems just kind of disconnected. 
at first. I didn't, I didn't see the connection. And then I remembered um, uh, this, this guy, I, or actually it was from a book, um, this definition of leadership that I read a couple years ago that I really liked. Um, so it's a guy named Max Dupree. Okay? I don't want to talk about it in context of, of leadership, but his definition of leadership is, is these three things. Defining reality, so defining reality, um, serving others, and then saying thank you. Okay, so that's what he says. This is what leadership is. It's defining reality, serving others, and saying thank you. Um, so I, we don't have time to talk about serving others. Who has time for that anyway? Um, not for this class. But I, I want to talk about these, these two ideas, defining reality and saying thank you. And think about it in the context of God okay, and, and, and your relationship with Him. Um, what would it mean for you on a regular basis, to, to have, a, have clarity about what's really happening in your life and where you really are in life and what God is doing. Some clarity on that. And then, how, from that clarity, to, to lead towards a place of gratitude, to be thankful for where you are, to be thankful for what, what's happening to and in you and what God is doing. And I, and I think when we start to think about it in that way is where we, is how we get to understand what Paul is describing when he says, be abounding in thanksgiving. The longer I sit with this definition, um, the more I see how gratitude is only possible when my soul is satisfied in God alone. Like when, I'm, when it's satisfied in Him alone is when I can be thankful for anything and everything that I'm going through. Gratitude and clarity are outward expressions of an inward and outer of our inward and outer wow outer worlds being whole in Christ. Gratitude becomes a deeper reality when our souls, like I said, are satisfied in God alone. So a, a life we talk about at the table, we talk about this integrated faith, um, using every area of your life to glorify God. When when a, a when a life is, integrates the truth of Jesus into their life, into understanding their, their own reality, their past, their present, their future, and when, when that happens, then, then trust in God and gratitude, I think, happens. It, it's a trust that says, God, I, I trust that you have me here for a reason. And it's gratitude that says, and I'm thankful that you're working in my life. And, and, I, and I believe at some level, because you're sovereign and in control, that if you wanted me anywhere else, you would have me somewhere else. But, but because I'm here, it must mean that you want me here. And because I'm, you want me here, it must mean you have something for me here. And, and, and to go from, God, why am I here, to, God, thank you that I'm here, is a process. And I think it, it starts with this, this recognition of what God is doing. And so to walk in Christ... I think means being thankful to God in all things. It requires a thanks, thankfulness to God in all things. So, um, I want to I give you just a couple minutes to spend some time in reflection, and then I want to come back and I'm going to give you basically the, the four things that I've been sharing of what it will require to walk in Christ. Um, but but before I do that, I'd love to give you just a few minutes just to kind of process, think and pray, write down whatever you feel led to write down, and then we'll come back together.
So I'll give you about three minutes. Okay, so I don't know if you caught these, but here's, here's kind of the four things that I've said. That walking in, in Christ will require time and sacrifice. It will require a right understanding of Jesus and the gospel. It will require, and I'll read these again, by the way, guarding against eluding arguments directly from our text, guarding against these arguments that are just meant to be slick and persuasive. 
but don't hold up. And then lastly, it will require being thankful to God in all things. So it'll, it, it will require time and sacrifice. It, it will require a right understanding of Jesus and the gospel. It will require guarding against deluding arguments and being thankful to God in all things. Let me pray. Father, we come to you, and I can't help but think that I often reduce you to to just a, a buddy or a, an angel on my shoulder that I can talk to whenever I want. And God, you're not that. You're the creator of the universe. You're both father and king. You rule and reign supreme over all of the universe. And God, your word challenges me not only to let my words be few before you, but also to, to ask anything to, 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 to come before you and to knock and to seek. And so God, we need to live in that tension of, of coming to you with everything, but also recognizing who you are. And so get, God, give us wisdom in that. Help us to know how to relate to you more. God, help us to know what it will require of us to, to walk in you, to, um, to be rooted in, deep in, in your word and your truth, um, to be built up so that, uh, so that we can withstand things that come our way and to be firmly established in a faith in you. And God, and through all of this, God, help us to be thankful for, uh, for what you are doing and, and where you have us. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.